So what if the justice system, what if your support system, what if your education system was that good that when someone came to visit, you couldn't wait to show them? And then just design that and build that. It's yours, so you can do it. Welcome to the Wake Up Walk Towards podcast. You are not alone during these times of climate crisis and colonial collapse. Join us as we meet people from around the world who are actively creating a regenerative future where all beings matter. I'm Catherine Cadden. And I'm Jeeva Mansky. I'm really excited to be talking with Dominic Barter today because I so appreciate the work that he's done over the last 25 years or so, building restorative justice programs with institutions, with communities, with people really all over the world. He's done a lot of that work in Brazil, where the model he developed in partnership with youth and others has been adopted across the country by courts, by police, by prisons, schools, communities. And one of the things that I've loved the most about connecting with him over the years is the ways that he's modeled collaboration, especially with communities that experience violence directly. So I'm looking forward to getting into that today and also to hearing more about some of the current projects he's recently launched, like the Beta Space System, which is about building community sustainability. I think our paths first crossed, Dominic, in 2003. You were on a team of trainers with Marshall Rosenberg at an international intensive in Argentina. What an awesome place That's to meet. <laughs> yes. Yes, on a on a like it was not quite. It was like a like a farm, like a ranch, wasn't it? Yeah, I ditched some sessions to go riding on horses one day. Yeah, we it was a full working ranch. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of stories we could talk about that time, but we'll save that for another interview. <laughs> one of the things that I'm just so excited about talking with you, we met at this time where we were both developing circles. You had already started calling them restorative circles because you were already really diving deep into restorative justice. Can you just speak a little bit about the development of that? Yeah, I, um, I moved to Rio in 92. Um, it'll be 29 years the day after tomorrow that I arrived. Wow. And... Um, I was in love. That's why I went. And, um, and I joke about it, but it's kind of true. You know, I went there because I was in love with Laura. And when I got there, I fell in love with the other 200 million people I met. And, um, <laughs> and I, I, I was, it took me quite a long time to realize that I'd moved there kind of in, in all senses of the, of the word. And in many ways felt much more comfortable there than in the environments in which I'd grown up, which I never quite felt were, were mine and um it was wonderful you know rio brazil is an amazing place beautiful people culture nature everything extraordinary but also uh, shockingly conflictual shockingly uh, uh dealing with uh, the consequences of of the ongoing uh, influence of colonial dynamics and it meant that I was basically, I moved into a, a city in a state of civil war, undeclared, but yet uh, very clear. I remember a few years later meeting uh, head of the Red Cross there, and he explained to me that that's where they brought doctors all over the world to, to work in public hospitals there. 
because that was one of the only places in the world where you could find war-grade injuries in a hospital ward without anyone actually formally declaring war on anyone else. Wow. And so it was deeply shocking because I, I, and I can remember at the time thinking, well, you know, if this was Johannesburg, I'd be just as shocked, but I couldn't say I wasn't warned. Like I, I knew growing up in Europe in the 80s, I, I knew what apartheid was and I knew the, the colonial legacy and the responsibility for that. But I hadn't been warned about the same depth of, of racist colonial violence as I found in, in Brazil. And it wasn't framed that way by most of the people I met there either, uh, on either sides of the, of the conflict. So it actually took quite a long time for me to orient myself sufficiently, not to realize that I knew what I needed to do, but to accept that not knowing what to do wasn't a, wasn't a lack. It wasn't a, f a fault of mine. It was simply a recognition of the situation. But that moment where I kind of I came to terms with the fact that I was clueless and that was my starting point was really key. Hmm. <laughs> that, that reminds me of the, um, the quote I actually used of yours in my book, Peaceable Revolution Through Education. I quoted you because I always loved that you said, you know, it, you're, the power of your doubt has been one of the, the driving forces and one of the things that have kept you going or, um, you know, and that was something that really struck me and resonated with my journey is I just stepped into things, even though I had full doubt, I had no idea how it was going to work out or how it was going to end up or if I'd even affect that much change, but I was willing just to dive straight in. Right. Because not knowing is the is the beginning of learning, right? Right. And since right, you and exactly. I both spent a lot a lot of time in education, we, we know how how seductive it is to say the opposite, because that's how schools and universities and colleges work. They think that it starts with with knowledge, with knowing, but that's actually the beginning of instruction, not the beginning of learning. Hmm. So um, there was no wisdom in my not knowing. Back in back in the early '90s, though, it was just pure cluelessness and disorientation. But it, it it was clear that okay, so if you're in relationship with the other, and there is and there is something uh, dramatic occurring, and the volume is raised, then you're actually going to make life easier for the both of you if you move closer together. And that was very counterintuitive because I'd grown up believing that conflict was dangerous. Right. I never formally been told that but it's just it's just in the air it's like a wild animal and if you go for a walk in the forest and you meet a snake it's safer for you and safer for the snake if you actually increase the distance between you because there's danger there for both species so if we think that conflict is dangerous well we'll we'll do the same thing we'll actually back away from conflict we'll try and increase the distance and what will conflict do it will generously increase the volume to compensate for that distance and the more the volume of conflict increases, the more it moves towards painful conflict. And then eventually, if painful conflict is suppressed or marginalized or silenced or combated, even if we try and resolve it, that will actually encourage it to move towards violence, which is, among other things, an attempt to, uh, to break through the barrier that we're creating, saying, no, there's no relationship here, there's no... No, there's no consequence. My actions don't affect the other. The other's actions don't affect me. There's no, no interdependence here. 
And conflict breaks through that barrier and says, no, actually, we do coexist, and does it in a terribly destructive, damaging way. Um, and so I started to realize, okay, so to bring this violence down to the level of painful conflict, and then possibly even painful conflict back down to simply conflict where we could maybe recover dialogue, I'm going to need to move closer to those who I, who I'm being informed I'm at war with. Uh, so that was what I did with my cluelessness. I walked towards the conflict rather than away from it. Yeah, I I want to ask about that too because as a as a pretty young person, the first time that we met, um, I was really struck by that idea as a as a really practical idea. Like I've, I'd heard people talk about the idea of getting closer to conflict or. Um, or looking at violence in different ways or those kinds of things. And it felt kind of fuzzy in a way. And then and you actually, you, you told this story of that being a literal following of impulse, that, that you, by, by kind of being with, um, with that sense of safety uh, and noticing where safety might not be, literally picking up a soccer ball and walking into this place that you'd been told was really dangerous. And from there, just kind of following the impulse towards connection, like following your curiosity and and leaning into those conflict moments. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and kind of where it, where it's gone and maybe even a little bit of where it is now, where that same kind of impulse is now. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's like Catherine said, doubt is, is what, it was what was motivating me. So I had this hypothesis, you know, that it's actually safer for us to be, to move closer towards conflict rather than further away from it. Um, but it was just an idea. I had to test it out. So the only way to test it out was, well, in, in U.S. terms, I crossed the tracks. I moved into the favela simply because that was the place that people consistently told me that it was dangerous for me to go. And the danger was apparently because the people there were in conflict with, with the people um, on the asphalt. So since my girlfriend lived in the asphalt, that meant that I was ending up being disconnected from a whole chunk of the city that way. So I moved, I moved into those places. And of course, there's this temptation to, to want to contribute something or to do something or to make something happen. Um, so it took a while for me to drop all that pretense and, and actually get back to basics, which is that I'm, I'm there to learn and not there to, to teach or inform or help or create anything to happen. And that's confusing as well because we, we, we associate a lot of what we consider good to be that kind of, um, kind of NGO logic, kind of government or business logic. They all kind of work the same way. It's, you, you know, there's a problem. So you look around the world, you find best practice, and then and then you try and bring that best practice to the place where you identify there's a problem. And, of course, then you have, you have this issue, which is um, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it doesn't come from that place. It doesn't, it, doesn't, uh, it didn't spring from the context in which things were challenging. And it doesn't recognize the fact that wherever people are dealing with challenge, there's an immense amount of creativity and resilience present there, which is often much more interesting than than any clever trick you can bring from somewhere else. So many, many years later, I found out that um, 
the folks who worked with Gandhi knew this very, very well. In fact, they had a phrase, they had to create all this language to describe it because they didn't have it like, like we still don't have it. And one of the terms I really liked, I, I translate into English, is the genius of the local. Mm-hmm. And it's basically the principle that at the bottom of the well, you know, in, in Portuguese, in Brazil, we say, when things are really bad, we say, fundo do poço, you know, at, the bo- at the bottom of the well, it's, it, it couldn't get worse. But the fact is, that at the bottom of the well, you have great conditions for growth. It's usually wet. Um, you know, all this, everything that falls in there rots, so you've got some, some, some great uh, earth at the bottom. Um, it's perfect. All, all that's missing is light. And I think of the light as being our attention, our, our, our presence, our willingness to engage, not from wherever we came from, but as, as, as people who are offering ourselves to be part of a new sense of community. So this isn't a new idea at all. In fact, there, there were subcultures where it even had a name in, in English. People used to call it class suicide. Hmm. It's basically, you know, we're not, not doing some kind of project. It's not about projects. It's not about creating change. It's about actually moving to where people are to find out what that has to do with you and then and then following whatever sprouts from that. I'm connecting to this to a couple of tweets that you offered recently um, where you said there is a depth to community that we don't, that something about we don't get to that depth until there is some damage or loss, that, that there's something about that, that transformation yeah. that we have to go through together. Right. And we have, we have a culture which is averse, adverse to conflict, you know, we're terrified of conflict. And we have a culture which is which is also um, allergic to grief. You know, yes. we're very, very, very unwilling to stop and recognize uh, what's happening, what's happening to the natural world, for example, what's happening to the to the diversity of species, what's happening to the diversity of um, of, of environments, and at the moment, what's happening to humans in the last year, absolutely devastating. And we don't we don't stop and do that. I calculated using a, something called the Bereavement X, uh, Index, which was developed in a university in the U.S. Um, I recently adapted their calculations to, to our situation in Brazil, where our real uh, extra excessive deaths, not necessarily all because of COVID, but probably a, a, the, the vast majority of them from COVID over the last year are actually about 320,000. So we're behind you but we're not that far behind. Mm. Um, so if you use that bereavement exercise, if you add together the, the deaths from, from violence that continue, and if you think about Brazilian families as being a little bit larger than most average US families, then we're looking at somewhere between 5-7% of the Brazilian population are in mourning at the moment because they, left, they lost someone. I've lost 21 people yeah. since COVID began. Uh, had a, had a conversation with a colleague yesterday. She's lost 45 people, including <sighs> seven people in her family. We don't, we don't stop to grieve. Yeah. No, yeah. We don't stop to grieve. So I'm interested in what happens when we don't do that. And I notice for myself, for example, when I'm fearful of conflict and I keep that to myself, I begin to have totalitarian fantasies. I dream that someone is going to arrive, strong person. It's going to put things in order. It's going to keep us safe. 
So then I can backtrack and I go, oh, I see. Okay, so there was, there was trapped mourning and trapped fear of conflict way, way back. And now we're just seeing, we're just seeing the way that manifests politically, the way that manifests socially with the kinds of governments that we're, that we're experiencing at the moment. And, and not even just in terms of those kind of rather uh, almost like comic book uh, leaders at the head of some of these governments, but just, just the general tendency towards this massive explosion in the number of laws and often very contradictory laws so that you're, 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 you're constantly disoriented by what's happening and, and we're just very, very unused to that. So something about an experience which I did just for myself and really didn't imagine would be meaningful for other people um, now seems to be um, relevant on a larger scale. At least that's, that's what I hear from people and it makes a lot of sense to me given how we're living at the moment. So how, how, I'm curious, this brings up questions around how do we grieve? How, you know, I've been talking a lot about death with my daughter um, because we've known somebody every week who's died and including my mother died during this time. Um, and so every night she grabs my ears and she says, okay, mommy, don't die, don't die. And I'll mm -hmm. say, I'll, and, I, and I'll say, I'll do my best. <laughs> you know, because I've learned to not make promises I can't keep. <laughs> and so, you know, for her, grief is very real and quite on top and it moves with a few tears and then and then it flows right back into being present to something else. So, you know, mm -hmm. how do how do you live and breathe with grief in your life? And and then then as community, I'd like us to feel it much differently as community too. Yeah. Well, just like fear of conflict gives me totalitarian fantasies, um, fear of fear of grief and, and it getting trapped in my body creates hate. So I can I can feel that viscerally in my body. I know what happens in my body when I go into a state of of hate. And there's you know lots of good stimuli recently for <laughs> for for being just absolutely devastated and outraged and 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 taken by fury, a kind of justified fury, which says you need me, you need to go into a state of of declaring the other an enemy. Otherwise, politically, we're not going to get through this moment. So it's very seductive. Mm -hmm. It's very very intense. And so, for me, the the kind of the ground dialogical social system of of these different games that I've been playing over the last quarter century is having a, a really solid, persistent, present empathic support system. Hmm. It needs to go for me personally way beyond like talking to someone a couple of times a week, like, you know, chatting with a friend with whom I roughly agree. Um, I need to make sure that it is happening consistently. Um, I need those people to be aware and we need strategies to deal with the fact that I would often much prefer to hide. And it needs to be very much connected to uh, a sense of, of something, uh, something very profound and shared in our reality as being the point of connection. Not, not, it's not agreement. It's not, uh, it's not enjoying each other's company. It's not necessarily anything that it's comforting. 
So I need to kind of take back the word empathy, which it's great that it's gone into popular culture, but it's kind of lost a little bit of its specificity as it's gone into popular culture. Mm. You know, I went out last week, I met someone, you know, there was this great empathic vibe between us. Well, you know, well done, congratulations. But that that wasn't empathy. That was a good thing maybe, but (laughs) it wasn't empathy. Empathy is, empathy has nothing to do with identity. It's nothing to do with with thinking the same thing, believing the same things. It's nothing to do with feeling the same things. It's to, it's to do with a, a particular focus of attention, and and I my understanding is that we only know it was empathy after the fact, and the reason we know it was empathy is because our imaginations came back, started functioning again, and action that was previously at a distance or just completely out of sight. Now it's absolutely clear. I have the energy and the clarity to act. So that's what I need. I need that. I need that several times a day, personally. Hmm. So that's a basic way that I deal with it. And then I and then I want uh, I want spaces in which grief can be experienced as something that is shared beyond the individual. So I agree with you that it's a community process, and I'm delighted to hear that that's. That's a, there's, a, there's a space for recognizing that fundamental aspect of change and the presence of death in our lives every day in, in, in the, the upbringing of, of someone young and new because of the many things that we can learn after the last year, one of them is that you know, we have not transcended the idea, you know, the, the reality of, of things coming from, from way beyond our vision and transforming life profoundly. And taking a lot, a lot of people. Hmm. Yeah, I. It brings up for me too about um, in in kind of thinking about loss and thinking about people that we're losing. There's the collective grief that we're experiencing in so many different ways, and one of those pieces is around losing our elders. And um, that includes, I'm sitting here with two people that I've learned a lot from, two teachers, and many other teachers these days are at or close to transition um, or have already passed. That that sense of kind of elderhood, I just kind of feel in do, the room Do you see how Gio right keeps trying to make himself a lot younger than us, Dom? I, 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 <laughs> you're stretching it just a little bit, Juba. <laughs> Neither of you are elders. I'm curious what you need from elders. <laughs> but it's funny, isn't it? Because as this happens, and as our elders, as, as these reference folks move on then then what are we we might not actually be elders ourselves but we're not the same as that kind of apprentice state that we're in exactly so i think that's right a, that's a challenging <laughs> transformation plus you know so many aspects of the world are moving so much faster than they were when we began this journey yeah i was thinking about that that when we first met from the time then to now with our work, you know, Facebook wasn't a thing, Uh, you know, just this immediate social media feedback of any of the work. And even, even just defining what we were doing, we weren't really defining it. We were just doing it. And then later it became important to define it because people became curious and wanted to then replicate it. And now 
I almost find myself at a frustrational moment of the the language is out there, restorative circle, restorative process, circle. And I walk into schools today and it's not exactly what I had I was doing or have been doing, and it's not exactly what I was intending or hoping would end up being out there, but there's like facsimiles of, and I'm just kind of curious, you know, and yeah, I'm thinking of like three things at once as I usually do, because I'm thinking of that responsibility that I feel right now, you know, so many of my teachers have left, you know, Stephen Levine, Ram Dass, Marshall Rosenberg. Um, So many people have, and then I feel that responsibility as I step up or change my seat on the circle. Um, and then trying to stay, stay the course and be clear and stay true to what I started out to do, which was really turned towards conflict. And, you know, and I like, I've heard you say, you know, how to have the better fight because, you know, there's something here that needs to be spoken and we need to, we need to look at, um, yeah, I guess what I'm curious about is, you know, what have your elders <laughs> impressed upon you and, you know, and what are you stepping up to with, you know, kind of that, what the elders have had give, have given you? Well, I think part of the challenge is that, um, the minute you have any effectiveness at all, you get co-opted. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, there is there is still massive structures of resistance, but the the current um, less explicit but perhaps more insidious form of resistance to change is to co-opt whatever that change is and to declare that you are supportive of it. And and I think that's one of the big challenges. I mean, even just when I was listening to you, Jiva, at the beginning, when you were like naming the work as restorative circles, I thought, oh, no, that doesn't work because like people are going to hear this in the U.S. In the U.S., restorative circles is a generic term. It's used to refer mm-hmm. to all kinds of restorative practices. Before that was a thing, or at least before we knew about it, we were using that name to describe something very, very specific. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at those generic processes, and that's great, it's great that there's lots of different ways of doing something and a, and a, a healthy, uh, divergent community of different options, because it's still, uh, even after 50 years, a very young movement, and there's so much that we still need to learn and develop and research. Um but you see that increasingly those practices that may carry that name are in fact co-opted shadows of the original research. Mm-hmm. They, they, they grew in communities, not as practices, but as actually social systems. And the social systems then host different practices. And those practices often change very fluidly over time as circumstances change. And a, a good, resilient and dialogical system, therefore a system that isn't instituted as a monolith which attempts to deny death and and resist change, but something that actually welcomes um, its constant necessity of shifting because its intention is to meet a need and on on a planet in which nothing ever returns and nothing repeats, there will always need to be updated ways of, of, of meeting those needs. Most of what we would refer to probably as restorative circles these days in that generic sense, isn't like that at all. There's a manual, there's a training. 
the questions are fixed or the chairs are already organized or the words are already on the wall or, or whatever. There's a, there's a recipe and you follow that. And of course, the danger, you know, the, that's, it's wonderful because it makes it easier and it spreads wide and more and more people can get the benefit of it. But it immediately it sows this danger is that once it's co-opted like that, once it's depoliticized, once it's presented as practice and no longer a system, so it's not a community agreement, but it's a specific way of doing things with a technique and therefore professionals who, who operate that technique, then the process that I call punitive drift sets in. Mm. So invisibly, it starts to orient itself in relation to the center of power and it starts to function to maintain the relationship of power. And it's extraordinary how fast that can happen. So if, I don't know that much about kind of the, the, de, the development of restorative practices in the US, but it was roughly about five years between seeing articles in the mainstream media saying restorative practices are this extraordinary way of dealing with some of the, the legacy of slavery and the way it manifests in different environments in the US to me getting emails saying, yeah, unfortunately, you know, restorative practices are now part of the racist system. It's being mm -hmm. used to exclude, it's being used to separate, it's being used to divide people. And so I think part of, part of how I'm looking to deal with, with this over time and kind of my own state of becoming an elder in a particular area is to recognize that, take care of these legacies, but also make sure that I'm ducking out regularly ducking out, ducking out. No, actually, you know, you can have that name now. Mm. You can have you can have that you can have that origin story. You can have that reference. And the tricky thing is um, how to deal with the reputation. So I I'm I'm not over Marshall dying. It it really, really hit me. And it didn't hit me because I didn't know that that the man wasn't getting old and that, you know, the body stops. It hit me uh, sitting for a couple of days with his partner in the house that he lived in, that they lived in, the house that he died in, a few weeks after after he passed, and just listening to what it was like. Hmm. And what it was like to see what had happened to his work. Hmm. And we built something with nonviolent communication in Brazil, which was a very, un we had a very unusual opportunity. We could start again. No one knew anything about it. And Marshall came down several times, um, including at that time when you and me met, uh, when we were in Argentina together. And there was an opportunity to go back to the system building and connect it to the interpersonal work and connect it to the inner work and have that place where, where the, the political, the interpersonal, and the intrapersonal, the psychic, all actually converge. And, and my understanding is that that is the point that he was referring to. It's the point where those, those three occur. Well, you know, almost anywhere you look now, NVC means something else. Mm -hmm. So what is NBC and who decides? And I think part of the challenge that I'm, that I'm getting from, from both your questions is, is to learn how to navigate those moments. To a certain extent, I, w I, I want, whether I agree with it, like it or not, doesn't matter, I want the term to refer to the thing 
that he was referring to when he created that term, mm -hmm. nonviolent communication, or when we created the term restorative circles without any understanding of what was happening in the US or anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. And then another aspect of me, I'm saying, take it, take it. Like, you know, we, we just got to keep moving. And we've, and we've got to balance somehow allowing those things that we associate with elders to accrue and, and, and offering ourselves as someone with a little bit of a story to tell, because even though I try to, my best to, st to keep not knowing, you know, when you've been not knowing about something for 25 years, it's different from when you don't know about it for, for a week. Um, and on the other level, just to, to, to really keep starting again. So in terms of what's been happening recently, uh, Jiva school, high school, um, uh, which we started six years ago uh, in Rio, a lot of work with financial co-responsibility, which kind of grew up with restorative circles. But for a long time, I didn't, I didn't really understand it systemically enough to, to be able to understand how to work with it with more flexibility and how to share it with other people. Uh, it took me a long time to understand that the support system was a social system as well and not just a practice. Um, so it's really been extrapolating from, from that learning from restorative circles and looking at the other areas that, um, that, that require like fresh thinking and, and, and doing that. And at the same time, for me, the last four or five years, are really kind of, which is one of the reasons why we haven't seen each other for so long, a really deep kind of crash into like, oh my God, you know, it, everything I've done could be co-opted and, and just, and just taken and distorted. Mm, mm -hmm. And like seeing what happened to Marshall at the end and realizing I'm on a similar trajectory. Um, a lot of us are, I, I didn't think that I didn't think we needed to think of that so soon. I, th I, I kind of thought that it was, I knew it was really, really hard at the beginning, hard for a long time. I kind of assumed that there was a moment where it would get easy, even if that was only just at the end. It was kind of shocking to see that that wasn't the case. For me, I, w I wasn't expecting it. So I don't think I'm ready to be an elder yet. I'm still working on, I'm still working on that piece and still um, trying to follow the, the, the non-knowing. There's something that you said in there that I was connecting to around that I've been looking at a lot, particularly as I've been experiencing the convergence of living in a pandemic, um, you know, really turning towards what needs to change with climate crisis. And then you admit just a huge new movement with anti-racism, particularly here in the US and what I've been experiencing um, and f participating in. And, you know, and, and then I also get the daily look at life through the eyes of a five-year-old, <laughs> which is, you know, right. really refreshing and sometimes terrifying, you know, um, when I try to think about her future and what's what's coming. And so, so I've been playing with um, just daily resilience, like what what builds resilience within myself or within inside my daughter. Um, you know, 
I mean, and the world is really merging. And I mean, when um, Chadwick Bosman died, you know, the actor who played Black Panther, you know, and I came down and she said, oh, did white men kill him? You know, and all these different layers of these different worlds are merging, you know, um, that have so many different layers of stress. Um, I've been really looking at what builds resilience, you know, and you mentioned that word just a little bit ago. So it popped up, you know, what are your thoughts on just even (laughs) how are we, how can we build resilience? You know, we're in the, we're in. It's a tricky word, I think, because sometimes it sounds like um, kind of training to be able to withstand the intolerable conditions in which we're living. So I think the first thing to do is to, to point out, I don't think either of us are talking about that. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. We're talking about the kind, the kind of resilience necessary to actually be able to step out of the yes. current structures. Yes, see them as structures. So I, I talk a lot. You know, I've diagnosed myself as suffering from system blindness, mm. which is a kind of made-up disease, but actually a very real thing. As I often only notice that I'm participating into or exacerbating unequal power relationships when pain strikes something that i do something that i say so i think of it like that scene in the film where you know someone breaks into the museum at night and there's the like the massive kind of ruby in the in the little case in the middle of the room and it looks fine you know, why doesn't that you know all the person's dressed up in all the kind of the the ninja gear and you know why don't they just kind of walk over there and pick up the the jewel and get out of there and they throw a handful of chalk dust or whatever it is from their from their pouch and suddenly you can see all those laser lights that you couldn't see before without that chalk dust. And then they've got to do their amazing kind of capoeira gymnastics to you know, not set off the alarms by touching any of the lights. And I think I think a, a lot of our resilience is, is a consequence to our, to our um, betraying our culture in a certain way, betraying the cultures that we grew up into by recovering the ability to be able to see these lines of power see the way it's distributed, see its, see its, its origins and its present uh, influences, and then learn to dance around them so that we can, so that we can move. And that takes, that takes a lot of resilience because it makes er- so many things about everyday life harder. You look around, you go, wow, you know, people look like they're having a much easier time. Of course, psychically, they're not. Mm-hmm. But yeah, absolutely, you can... You can you can enjoy a day much more if you're not aware. For instance, in, in, in Rio, the, the, the wall on the other side of the street where I live, it was all slave labor. So every day I look at those stones and it's this massive, this extraordinarily high wall. Just remembering where that, where that came from. A lot of the people I know, uh, you know, that's their grandparents. So waking up to waking up to those things is not is not necessarily easy and I think there's a uh, the reason one feels so much easier than the other is that we actually have very strong support systems for a particular uh way of life which is which is in many ways a state of war a state of war with ourselves with each other with nature and one of the reasons why doing things differently seems so much harder is because the support systems are not there. So resilience is very important, but I don't want to I don't want to individualize resilience. I don't want to start talking about resilience as a skill. 
I don't want to talk about anything as a skill ever again, please. <laughs> if we can. Um, uh, that makes me think of the time we were in the cafe in Berkeley, and I said to you, I can't wait for the workshop phase of humanity to be over. <laughs> no, Catherine, better than that. You, you wrote it on a napkin, which I still have. You didn't say, I can't wait. You declared that the workshop stage of our evolution is over. And that phrase, I've never... It's never never left my mind, and it's it it was it was music to my ears because yes, let's let's please stop basing our response to this on the idea that there's something lacking in mm -hmm. us that we need to achieve, and let's please stop not noticing that the formats that we're using, for example, workshops, which are great for all kinds of things, are nonetheless pr practices that belong to a certain system, and if we don't if we don't own that that system then our practices are serving something else. So great, let's have classrooms when classrooms are useful, let's have workshops when workshops are useful, but let's build them to serve what we're doing from the ground up. Let's take back the, 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 the founding agreements within which a classroom, for example, exists. So I think that's the kind of resilience we need, a resilience to be, to be conscious uh, and, and actively engaged with celebrating and strengthening the systems that we currently have that serve life, dismantling the ones that don't, and building new ones. And rather than building new ones because we've got some brilliant new ideological response to everything, we can all gather under a new colored flag and then discover once again that the, uh, the, the, res the result of doing that is an, an, an authoritarian nightmare. Let's do it dialogically so that the... the these new structures, this new education system, this new financial system, this new justice system, its desire is not to, to perpetuate itself and to resist change. When I say it's dialogical, it's not simply because it creates spaces that invite and, and promote dialogue. It's also that the very building of the structure within these spaces, within which these spaces occur, is in itself intentionally vulnerable to change intentionally vulnerable to its to its usefulness and therefore wanting all the time feedback wanting conflict wanting contradiction wanting change and not and not resisting it so that it stays alive so one of our one of our commitments we have in our network is to have a party when we're no longer useful to celebrate <laughs> the the transition out of what we know either into something we know a new thing or into not knowing so that so that we have a, a a culture of 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 commemorating and 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 expressing gratitude at endings i'm smiling because i think that's one of the well one of the places i've always deeply connected and trusted you but it's something unique about our approach um is that we weren't doing this to have a job we're not we're not trying to create work it's it the whole point is that we're not going to be necessary or it's not going to the work is itself will be so integrated into how we're actually living i've heard you say more than once you know to folks that you know it's you are the circle walk in being the circle you know that i can walk in and be be it i don't have to wait for it to arrive to me and and i used to make so many people i worked with angry when i was doing 
work in high schools. And I was like, oh, well, we could transform this whole system. And I remember one teacher saying, but then I would be out of a job. And I said, well, isn't that kind of the point that we're kind I don't want to have to do this the rest of my life. It's it's the way I approach going, you know, we, we've been doing a, a weekly uh, Black Lives Matter rally and I've been working with folks going, no, this isn't something we want to do every week. This is, this needs, today needs to be the last one we show up to. Like the whole point is that this is the last yeah. one. Yeah, I like that. Have a party when we're no yeah. longer useful <laughs> or not necessary. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And to and to keep and if we keep listening, then 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 we're kind of we're up to date with 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 what is currently necessary. So what we're doing is not because this is the thing we do. We do. We're doing it because we listened and this is and this is what we heard is most meaningful right now. So even when it seems to be the same thing day after day, it's it's not. It's a new thing. And and yes, we need to look at all these extraordinary dangers that are, that are happening. I'm I'm glad that you mentioned the the ecological situation because it's so intense that sometimes we're going to go back into. I notice myself. I go back into not speaking about it just because, oh, you know, that it's already been a full day, and and after this, I'm going to cook, and so, you know, I, I want I want to be in one piece. But but every single time, every moment, it's got to be mentioned. But it's not what motivates me. What motivates me is that it's amazing to hang out with other people. It's amazing to see the seasons change, and it's amazing to to be alive. And the potential for change is extraordinary. Mm. I love I love that idea and the way that um, you know, in doing the work to build a new world, we're actually participating in that and we're participating it now in our lives right here. And so I, I kind of want to bring it back to practice too. Um, and you mentioned this earlier about, you know, that need for empathy and that, that need for the type of empathy that really kind of pulls you to yourself. And I remember, um, uh, again, a long ago conversation, um, you said to me something like, um, it's important to me to have uh, somebody that I can connect with in every time zone so that at any point in my day, I can reach out. Yeah. And then the second thing that you said was, and it's also important for me to call before I need it. And so I'm just curious what that practice is like for you now of, of being that deeply connected and, and reaching out in the ways that you need, um, even before you need them. Yeah. It's dynamic. It changes depending on the circumstances. The first thing we did when the pandemic came was to, was to, to gather together online. Um, the people I've been working with most closely and kind of, and strengthen and update our support system for, for the, the moments that we predicted were about to come and to set up a doorway so that those people who were on the front line could get that kind of support. Because often it's the people who, who others rely on most, who are the first to forget that they need support. I think of, you know, we as a culture, we still think of support as being a, a distraction or maybe some kind of like bourgeois luxury that, that, that you have support. And I was very, very slow to actually take seriously my need for support because I kept on trying to do, do without it. And it was only when I realized that support is not for me. I need support to protect you from me when I'm de, de um, 
not not um don't have the nutrition i'm i'm underfed because if we're if we're in some critical relationship together and 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 i'm denourished i you're the one who's going to pay for it so, so support is really to protect our colleagues from us when we're undernourished and 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 so when i started to understand that when i started to see the extraordinary cost of me not having support particularly at the moments when i was most challenged and started to actually i still couldn't see it happening but i could see the consequences of what would come out of my mouth and what i would what i would do when i was when i was undernourished but unwilling to step away um that's when i started to take it seriously so so whatever it is, if we're if we're starting, you know, a, a, a space where it's safe to 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 speak the truth when conflict get, gets painful, if we're if we want to create a space where where we recognise that the curriculum for education comes from the students and comes in dialogical, dyn, you know, dynamic, changeable, creative tension with with people who have artisanal learning because they've been around longer. If we want to recognise that despite the fact that the financial system currently is organized to put us into competition, even when we're asleep, even if we've never met each other, because there's always more debt than there is money in circulation. So we're always battling each other. And yet we can still share the things that we have between us, oriented by by a different logic. If we want to start doing those things, the first thing I think we need to do, following this this logic of of the intelligence, the genius of the local, is to look at what we already know that works really well in that particular circumstance. So if you want to build yourself a support system, look at what you already know that works really, really well. Because the habit we have is to look always at things as being a lack, as a problem. If we don't look at what we already do, then we, then we miss the extraordinary creative potential that we have. And we don't build on what's already organically here. And of course, what's organically here is ideal because it was born in the in the circumstances which are so tr- so so challenging for us. So it's it's the, it's the spark of the new. It's the restorative flame. It's the thing that we're going to build on. So we throw out all the manuals, all the books, all the courses, all the idea that there is a fixed way of doing things, and we just look at the current circumstances. And even though our heads will fill with what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong. Okay, no problem. Just keep on asking this question. What do we already know works well in this particular situation? So if you were to build yourself a support system, if you're, going, if you're looking and going, wow, one month into 2021, my goodness, that was, that was worth a year. Six years ago, we'd have went, wow, that was a busy year. And now that we call that January. <laughs> you know... <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep focused on the conversation and my phone is saying, "Oh, the president of Brazil has just has just nominated to the justice commission someone who believes that the earth is mm-hmm. flat." Mm-hmm. So, you know. <laughs> so, I don't want to wait. I I want to make sure that since I know this kind of stuff is going to keep coming, I, you know, every like Catherine was saying, every time I open Facebook, someone else mm-hmm. is gone. I know this is going to keep happening. It's a it's a long way off from shifting, and there's going to be a lot of loss before that happens. 
So build the system now. Don't wait. Don't wait for conflict. Oh, no, you know, we're okay at the moment. When we're in conflict, I'll call you. Don't call me. I don't live with you. <laughs> Do it now. The conflict is yours. The relationships are yours. You don't need an expert. You don't need someone from outside. You already have that understanding. You do need to sit down and, and list it. Okay, so I need support. I know I need support. Even though I feel okay today, I know the possibility is that something's going to happen 3.30 in the afternoon, unexpected, at work, in the family, in the relationship, in the neighborhood, in the national news. Something's going to happen. So get ready. That's the resilience. The resilience isn't, isn't your, your, your way to dance with the unexpected when it happens. The resilience is the infrastructure that you build for your life. That's when you start to get political power as well. That's when your relationships aren't just relationships anymore, but they're models of a new way to coexist. When you actually formalize, no, we, we're, we're going to consciously create a family that makes sense for us, consciously create a group of people who work together, consciously create a neighborhood, consciously, therefore, create justice systems, education systems, and all the rest. So ask yourself, what is it that works well? And whatever you build is going to be a development of that, a development of what already exists or what already works well then yeah, sure, you can list the things that you don't want to do anymore. You also have a long experience of doing stuff which doesn't work, which hurts. Maybe the stuff that used to work well, but it doesn't work anymore, it's out of date. So even though there's no magic power in just stating those things, and some of them may prove to be very habitually resilient, and, and it's tough to get rid of them, and they continue to receive masses of support. It's like the invisible subsidies. You know, we're saying, oh, good, you know, wind is all, solar is almost as cheap as oil. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. If oil wasn't subsidized, oil would never have been cheap. How can you, mm -hmm. you know? But we don't see that. We don't mention that. So, so the, the, the deaf culture has subsidy all the time. So it is useful to ask that question. What is it we know doesn't work quite so well? Something about collectively noting that down, saying it, writing it down, looking at it. It, hasn't, it doesn't have magic power, but something happens. Oh, I get it. You know, we fight, we label each other. I've been doing it, you know, since I was six. It never worked. It gives me that little rush of adrenaline. It connects me to a system which I didn't have to build, which says the person who's right is the person who wins. Being right is capturing the words, like capturing the flag. Capture the label, make it yours, and you win. Okay, so I can recognize that. I can see it's a chemical rush in my body, and it doesn't help me. It doesn't help us. So something about noting that down. And then the third question, which is where you really, where the creativity really begins, is by saying, okay, so if this, if this way of taking care of ourselves, if this support system, if this education system, if this way of learning continually together, if this way of understanding that conflict is a natural part of all relationships that are worthwhile, and therefore it needs a room, it needs a space, it needs time in our, in our office, in our building, in our life, in our home, in our community. If all these things are true, then what would they look like if they really look like us? If they're really aligned with our values? Like one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to turn up at, at, at your house, Catherine. I've been dreaming of that for a long time. And I'm sure that when I do, you're going to say, look at that tree, look at that view. 
Ever since I got here, I looked at that view and I thought, I want all my friends to see mm -hmm. that view. So what if the justice system, what if your support system, what if your education system was that good that when someone came to visit, you couldn't wait mm -hmm. to show them? And then just design that and build that. It's yours, so you can do it. I'm just really appreciating both the kind of constant kind of ways that you bring it back to collective um, and the way that that personal and collective kind of intersect. And I'm going to sit with a lot of the things that you've said and, and just appreciating kind of being in this with you and uh, the ways that um, this conversation has sparked ideas, has helped me notice places in my life that um, it's already moving in that direction and uh, the, both the ways that um, I'm stuck in my system's blindness as well as participating in the construction of new systems. And so just really appreciate your, your time and your willingness to tell all these stories and, and to be in it with, with us. Thank you so much for joining, joining us, Dominic. This has been I feel like we could keep going for several hours and I'm just, I'm just really enjoying this deep, rich conversation. Thank you so much. To learn more about Dominic Barter's work, you can go to restorativecircles.org or you can follow him on Facebook at Dominic Barter 42, or you can follow him on Twitter at Restora Circles. Wake Up Walk Towards production team is Catherine Cadden, Jeeva Mansky, Jesse Weens Jew, and Jordan Torres of Brown Boy Talking. Our music is by the Macrosoft. The Wake Up Walk Towards podcast is a production of Baba Tree International, a nonprofit organization committed to a world where everyone has the knowledge and ability to contribute to peace within themselves and with others, and where this wisdom is passed on from generation to generation. You can learn more about Babatree online at babatree.org, where you can also donate to support this podcast by becoming a monthly donor. Thank you for joining us. And until next time. Build the system now. Don't wait. Don't wait for conflict. Oh, no, you know, we're okay at the moment. When we're in conflict, I'll call you. Don't call me. I don't live with you.